Yes, good morning uh, to you. As Micah said, we're going to do the message in uh, two parts uh, today, and it's my privilege to uh, kick off our series where we work through the Old Testament book of Jonah. If you have a Bible, why don't you join me in turning there to the book of Jonah. If you haven't got a copy of the Scriptures but would like a copy, all you need to do is just to raise your hands in the air and our ushers will be delighted to give you a copy of the Scriptures. And once you receive those Scriptures, you can turn to page 925, and that is to Jonah chapter 1. Now, a couple of times in the, uh, a year, we will do a series that is what we consider to be a pivotal series. This is one of them. And around these series, we do short circles. Many of you in here will be stepping into a small group short circles that will just parallel what we are going to do in the message today. And this series and this set of short circles also comes at the same time as Lent. Now, Lent was an unfamiliar practice to me until I moved here. The church has been doing for, I think it's about four or five years, uh, just a journey towards Easter. Some people don't appreciate the background of Lent. Lent is not simply a, a Catholic thing, but as Brad shared last Wednesday morning to the 15 of us that braved the blizzard, um, it, it actually predates that. Lent was originally a period of about six weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, where those people who were going to get baptized on Easter Sunday would go through this period of preparation. And over time, the church broadened that in realizing that all of us journey towards Easter Sunday. And so they broadened the appeal of Lent to, to appeal to all Christians and saying, you know what, it's really important for us all to prepare ourselves for the good news of Jesus, that he didn't just die, he actually rose again. Prepare for that. And we recognized that it is really important, believing as we do that God wants to do a great work through us, that God would therefore need to do a greater work within us. Because any work that God does through us is prepared by the work that God does within us. And we believe that this Jonah series is going to help us all allow God to do a great work within us. And uh, I'm excited to kick off this message today. Now, in this message, I'm going to tackle three questions. The first question, whenever you get to the subject of Jonah, is, is this story real? If you're familiar with the whole idea of, uh, of the Jonah story, a guy getting swallowed by a fish and then vomited, really? Uh, secondly, people will ask, why on earth did Jonah run away? And thirdly, okay, what's this got to do with me? I'm going to tackle those today simply by looking at one phrase in the opening two and a half verses. And I believe that one phrase actually answers those three questions. It will be on the shadow of a doubt revealed to us that this story is real. It will reveal to us why Jonah ran away. And it will also, as you will hopefully discover, apply to us in an unmistakable way. So have a look with me at the first three verses, or two and a half, actually, of Jonah chapter one. And I'm actually going to put part of this on the screen. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. That's as far as we'll get. 
The phrase I want you to note in answering that first question, is this real, is that phrase there, Jonah, son of Amittai. That phrase points us backwards to a definite period of history, and as we'll discover in the second part of this message, it also points us forward to the work that God needs to do in Jonah's life and also in our own. Through this message, we'll discover we are Jonah. There is a work that God needs to do in our heart for us to fulfill the call that he has for us. Jonah, son of Amittai, points us back. It helps us realize this is a historical figure. To see that, we need to turn back to a, another book in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 14. Now you can turn there if you want to, if you receive the Bible. I think it's going to be page 375, if my memory serves me correctly. But I'm going to put some of the verses on the screen here. From chapter 14, verses 23 through 25, we're introduced into the period of history that I'm suggesting to you is the period that Jonah ministered in. Here's the way that begins. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. Whoa, that's complicated. So we're obviously talking about the period after Solomon where the country was divided in two. You've got the northern kingdom and you've got the southern kingdom. There's one king over the southern kingdom. Here we're talking about Jeroboam the second king of the northern kingdom, and he reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Well, there's an awful lot of Jeroboams in there, aren't there? There are two of them, which he had caused Israel to commit. So there's a definite time period I'm suggesting here. Now, the period that we're talking about is basically around the 8th century B.C., these are the lists of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. So after the kingdom divided, you'll see Jeroboam the first. That's the, the, the last Jeroboam mentioned in that verse, who's interestingly the first king. And then we're starting to talk about this period here, Jeroboam the second. In the 8th century BC, about 790 to about 750 that BC, that's when he reigned. And what I'm suggesting to you is that Jonah ministered in this period. It'll be more than a suggestion in a moment. You'll see why I'm saying that. Now, notice then that you've actually got Jonah ministering at the same period of history to the same northern kingdom as two other prophets, Amos and Hosea. That's going to become really important for answering our second question. Why did he run away? So I'm suggesting to you that this is the context here. It's the northern kingdom. He's a prophet who has access to the prophetic, um, to the, to the, in the prophetic court to the king Jeroboam II, who is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Here's why I say that. Jeroboam II was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea. Now, why did he do this? Look at this. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant who... Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. So basically, there is no shadow of doubt that the readers who would have read Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, because his wickedness has come before me. But Jonah ran away. There is no doubt that when the readers read that, they would have been taken to this guy. Straight back to 2 Kings chapter 14. This is the guy. Now, what did Jonah tell Jeroboam II to do? This is going to be important as well. He told him, go strengthen the northern borders. Why would he do that? Well, Assyria had been moving at that point in history further southwards to try and control the trade route to Egypt. But three weak kings had succeeded to the Assyrian throne. They were now weakened. And Israel in this moment saw an opportunity. And to Jeroboam II, prosperity ruled, peace ruled. And the threat didn't come from Assyria in the north, but actually from Aram, as you can see the green there, just to the east of them. This is part of the context. He's an eighth century prophet ministering and to Jeroboam II, he's got access to the king and he tells the king, having received revelation from God, go strengthen the northern borders. Assyria is perceived to be weak. Aram is perceived to be the, the strength that they need to stand against. And in that period of history, Israel was prosperous and it was peaceful. But, as is often the case, with the prosperity came idolatry and increasing injustice. This is summarized nicely for us by a guy by the name of Wright in a book, Rose Then and Now. He writes this, all evidence suggests that Israel enjoyed a booming economy under Jeroboam II fueled largely by good harvests, full storehouses, and a well-oiled administrative machinery. Precisely the conditions that also bred complacency and eventually exploitation of the poorest strata of society. The cries of injustice that echoed in the streets and the marketplaces of Israel were ignored by the elitist upper crusts, upper crust, which were otherwise preoccupied with maintaining its own interests. So you get the, the context then. Jonah's a a real prophet. And this verse, verse 25, tells us three things. Firstly, it tells us clearly Jonah was a historical figure. Now, this is important to note. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we encounter two different people, okay, who possess the same forename and father's name, Jonah, son of Amittai. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we get two people like that both of whom had a prophetic office, they were both prophets, both of whom move in the same social circles and minister in the same period of history. In other words, we don't get that anywhere. Jonah of the book of Jonah is the same Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14. When the readers heard this, they realized this is a historical figure. This guy's real. Secondly, this verse, verse 25, shows us that Jonah was a credible prophet. Now, this is going to be important for the interpretation of why Jonah ran. Some people will say, well, he runs because he's just a disobedient prophet. Really? This phrase, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, is literally according to Yahweh, the God of Israel's word. It's a unique phrase. Nowhere in all of the Old Testament do we actually hear that phrase. And so while no direct speech is attributed to Jonah in 2 Kings 14, the uniqueness of this phrase establishes two things, his prophetic credibility and his competency. This isn't 
a disobedient prophet who speaks truth in church and actually lives completely contradictory outside of it. This phrase establishes his credibility. It establishes his right to be considered as a faithful prophet of God. Thirdly, verse 25 also shows us, this is important, Jonah wrestled with current issues. He was trying to live right in an unrighteous nation, and doing that caused him challenges. This is where the the reference to Amos and Hosea help us out. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll know that Hosea, that book was written sometime between 755 and 725. It would have been about between 780 and 760. Okay, the early part of Jeroboam II's reign that the Jonah story would have happened. But Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom. And if you're familiar with the story, it's simply this, that he was married to a woman who was habitually unfaithful to him. And he was hurt. He wanted judgment to come. But God said to Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go after your unfaithful wife and I want you to bring her home because just as you will receive again someone who has been unfaithful to you, so I will show mercy to my people who have been unfaithful to me. So you've got mercy on the one hand. This is the message that is being proclaimed through the prophets at this point in time. Mercy. God is a God who delights in showing mercy to those people who are unfaithful to him. But there's another side that's also being proclaimed and wrestled with. It's the message of Amos, written from about 760 to 753 BC in that period. Amos, if you're familiar with that book, was all about judgment. God is a God who brings judgment upon those people who disobey him and are unfaithful to him. Jonah? He's listening to both of these messages. He's wrestling with this issue. That this is the context is clearly shown here from 2 Kings 14, 26 and 27. Look at these words. There's two messages. Mercy. Thank God that he shows mercy. Judgment. Look at it here. You see the wrestle. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. Doesn't this remind you of Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, where Jesus looks at the crowds and he's troubled inside because they're harassed and helpless and there's no one taking care of them? This is the way that God looks at his people in this point in time. The Lord, look at this, did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. Judgment. Judgment, judgment. He didn't say that he would do it in this period of history. Why does it need to be explained? Because that was the expectation amongst many people. Sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? All the wickedness going on in the nation and the world and people are saying judgment, judgment, judgment. The end is coming, the end is coming. Maybe it is, but we don't know. We can do well to draw a lesson from this. What did God say? He would save them by the hand of Jeroboam son of Joash, mercy. Jonah is right there in the middle of all of this. 
He's a historical figure. He's a credible prophet. He's a competent prophet, but he's dealing with the real issue. A sinful nation and a merciful God. And he's listening to this message of judgment on the one side and mercy on the other side. And he wants judgment to fall because he is living, trying to live right in an unrighteous world. And these leaders that are leading him are not helping him at all. This is the context for the book. This is the struggle that Jonah's wrestling with. God, why is it that evil leaders prosper? Why is it that judgment doesn't fall? God, how long, how long do I need to wait? So, Jonah is a real person. He's dealing with a real issue. The book is historical, and while laced with humor, there is so much humor in this book, and you'll discover this as we go through. God's got a sense of humor. It isn't hysterical. Now, the story of a man being swallowed by a fish is pretty funny to all of us, right? Really? But to the original readers, this, this was no laughing matter because the whole idea of faithful people experiencing the prosperity of the wicked was something they didn't like. This is the context. This is what Jonah is wrestling with. So is this a book a real story? It's a real story. But the second question we ask then, and this lends us to this and leads us to it, is why did he run away? When you look at the story of Jonah, we quickly recognize that Jonah is struggling with God's call on his life because Assyria, where Nineveh was, just like Israel, is actually being led by leaders who are doing unrighteous things. And Jonah is wrestling with this because he knows what God is like. In fact, Jonah says this himself, doesn't he? Jonah chapter four. Eventually, we'll discover that Jonah obeys and he goes to Nineveh. And then God does what he does. He shows mercy on the wicked. And what does Jonah say? Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Are you beginning to get a picture here? This is a guy who is struggling with what he knows about God. He says he knows that God is gracious and compassionate. How does he know this? Well, we'll see in week number three in chapter two, when we get to chapter two of Jonah, that Jonah is shown to be someone who is well-averse in the scriptures. He is steeped in the scriptures. As he prays from the belly of the fish, he cites one psalm after the other that we can trace to the psalms that were being sung in the northern kingdom in the worship at that point in time. He's a man who knows the word in his head. 
<laughs> but this prophet is also someone who has come to experience the knowledge of God, not just in his head, but in his heart. He has experienced a God who is exceedingly merciful, even showing mercy to those people that had wronged him. And he struggles with this. You see, common to both Second Kings and the book of Jonah is this whole idea of a sinner king and divine blessing. A prophet is simply tired of seeing idolatry thrive, injustice expand, wickedness prosper, and he's saying, God, when are you going to bring judgment? I knew it. You're going to show mercy again, aren't you? And so for the earliest readers, those familiar with the setting, within the early years of Jeroboam II's reign, the central issue is not with the prophet's reluctance to obey. See, in that point in time, God was disappointing them. It was quite understandable how faithful people were struggling to be faithful to God when God wasn't seemingly being faithful to them. That wasn't their struggle. What was their struggle? Their struggle is with God's reluctance to act now. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you are Jonah? Where you've been wronged by someone, you speak out and maybe you weren't believed. And not only were you not believed, but the person that did this to you didn't just survive, but they thrived. And no matter who you told, no matter what you did, no matter how hard you prayed, they're still getting away with it. In a moment like that, aren't we Jonah? In a moment like that, don't we fall down on our knees and basically said, God, why don't you bring judgment? God, why don't you vindicate me? But he doesn't. We can also look at our nation, can't we? And we can see some of the decisions that are being made that we think, God, why, why in this nation are we moving further and further away from those founding principles that caused this nation to be a, a light to the world? God, why don't you act? Why don't you just judge these leaders and bring them down? But no matter how hard we pray, <laughs> they just seem to get away with it. And in that moment, we're Jonah. Oh, we would never think of running away, but we would certainly back off in our hearts from being close to him. We can see the, the struggle here too when we look at our world, can't we? Maybe you like me, 10 days ago, 14 days ago, caught the news and you saw another village in Africa filled with Christians where 105 people had been murdered by Boko Haram, where innocent women and children had their heads chopped off in the name of mighty Allah. And maybe you, like me in that moment, were looking at this thinking, God, why do you delay judgment? How long must the innocent suffer while these people get away with it? 
This irritated me so much because one time I was looking at the news and this was the time where Boko Haram went into another village and actually murdered, burned alive 375 Christians and I thought about putting that picture on the screen but realized there probably needed to be a PG-13 on that one. You can't look at these things and not say, God, why, oh, why, oh, why do you delay judgment? Why are they getting away with this? Why do you continue to show mercy? Something happened a few weeks ago that made me realize in, in situations like that, it is really important for me to recognize that God's delay in bringing judgment is not his denial. The issue that Jonah is wrestling with is the sovereign plan and purpose of God that he cannot understand. Let me encourage you, if you personally have been wronged and people seem to have got away with it, know this, God's delay is not a denial. Judgment will come. If not in this life, then certainly in the next. This was made real to me over the situation that uh, Vipka and I have been involved in for over four years of a, of a family that were brought into our life and uh, there were innocent children that were suffering and Vipka and I stepped in and over and over again we tried to work in that situation to bring the family situation to a really healthy point but nothing we did would actually remove the oppression from these children. They were suffering, the innocent were suffering. So we did what we could. But still it continued. We got down on our knees and we said, God, why don't you intervene? We involved the system, and rather than the system seemingly help bring an end to the suffering of the children, it just seemed to go on and on and on. And Vipka and I would pray, God, what are you doing? Can't you see that these children are suffering? You see, we wanted judgment and we wanted it then. But God delayed. And it was so easy at many points in this journey to think that that delay was a denial, but it wasn't. I just didn't know what God was doing. And then about three years into all of this, God sends us up here. And part of our wrestle was what's going to happen with these children. And we wrestled with it, and we kept praying, delay, delay. But two weeks ago, we heard that the judge had actually stepped in. A decision has been made. All of the children would be relocated up here. And guess what? God's delay wasn't a denial because he had families for these children right here. These nine children that would have undoubtedly, if a decision had been made way back then, gone into the foster care system, many of them aged out, who knows what happened, would have happened to them. They're now going to have forever families because God, in his wisdom, used his timing, not mine. And this is what Jonah's about to see. He wanted judgment. And judgment now. But what we recognize is in less than 50 years after that, after Jonah left the stage, it's probably about 30 years later, the ones to whom God showed his mercy through Jonah, Assyria, 
became the hands through which God's loving discipline would be experienced by Israel. Jonah's mission to Nineveh served to establish Israel, uh, Assyria's credibility as tools in the hands of God himself. God knew what he was doing. Judgment would come in his time, in his way. And Jonah had to learn that a delay is not always a denial. He had to learn that God delights in showing mercy to all people, even to those that had wronged him. James chapter 2 says this. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful because mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, it's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it, when we've been wronged? We want judgment to fall. We want the victim to be punished. But God in his mercy extends them time and grace. And what I want us to do right now is I want us to reflect on that truth. I've asked the band to come up and to sing a song, Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. You'll see the words on the screen, and as you do that, I want you to remember what this cross symbolizes. It symbolizes the triumph of mercy over judgment. It symbolizes that even though judgment could well and should well have fallen on all of us because of the way we have wronged our Father, God in His mercy put that punishment and that judgment on His Son so that you and I could be forgiven. And what Jonah was about to discover is that that message of mercy triumphing over judgment was something that he needed to live with. And the way the book starts with a runaway prophet without telling us why, and the way the book ends with a reluctant prophet sitting on the ground frustrated that God continues to show mercy, asks the question that is being asked to all of us. When we are wronged, will we respond with mercy? Will we forgive? Will we show love? And for every one of us who has understood, who understood what the cross is, the answer to that would be, God, help me live like this. I let it go. So as you listen to this song, allow God to work that truth into your heart, and then we'll pick up straight after that.
against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from God, boarded a ship heading away from Nineveh, and fled toward Tarshish. I am Jonah. I know the truth, but I am usually reluctant to walk in it because of its implications. I am Jonah. I will run from God's purposes if the implications are too great. I am Jonah. When things get hard, I flee toward my Tarshish. I am Jonah. Surrender is something I often consider optional. I am Jonah. Pleasing others is often more important to me than honoring God. I am Jonah. I decided to play the, the bumper there because I feel that with that background, we're now in a position to start to read the book. I feel that all too often it's possible for us to open a book, start to read it, and to make an assumption. And what we discover when we just do a little bit of digging is an assumption is often the enemy of truth. The truth here is that there is a faithful prophet of God who is struggling to understand what God is putting him through. And the story of the book is what does God need to do to the one he loves to bring him to the point of living out the truth that he knows? As we go through this book will discern certain events. And what's interesting with the events is how tied to Jonah's name, the work that God needs to do in his heart truly is. Here's what I mean with that. The name Jonah essentially means dove. Now, if I were to ask you, can you think of 
an expression or an, a biblical phrase that you would give, uh, that you would use to explain what a dove is, many of us would think the Holy Spirit, right? When we think of a dove, we think of the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, when someone was called a dove, that's not what it meant. I want to show you what the dove meant. If, if you were to think about a dove, you'd think about the bringer of good news followed by disappearance. This is called the principle of first use. The first use of the word dove in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 8. It's the flood story. And when the dove is returned, we read to him in the evening to Noah, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Brings good news. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. When the Old Testament hearers would have, under, would have listened to this word dove, they would have thought about someone who brought good news and then disappeared. What does Jonah do? Nineveh chapter 3, repent or you're all going to be destroyed. And then he disappears. He is his name. Oh, there's more than that. A dove is also someone who moans. What does Jonah do all through the book? Moan. He moans at God from beginning to end. It is decreed that Nineveh, Nahum, a couple of years after Jonah as well, that Nahum be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. The work that God wants to do in this prophet's heart is to stop his moaning. He just moans. A dove is also a person that lacks understanding. Ephraim, Israel, is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless. How many of you, be honest, have never read the book of Jonah and thought, Jonah, you're an idiot. You can't 